Psalm 19, and it's written by David. The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. Day after day they pour forth speech. Night after night they reveal knowledge. They have no speech. They use no words. No sound is heard from them. Yet their voice goes out into all the earth. Their words to the ends of the world. In the heavens, God has pitched a tent for the sun. It is like a bridegroom coming out of his chamber, like a champion rejoicing to run his course. It rises at one end of the heavens and makes its circuit to the other. Nothing is deprived of its warmth. The law of the Lord is perfect, refreshing the soul. The statutes of the Lord are trustworthy, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, giving joy to the heart. The commands of the Lord are radiant, giving light to the eyes. The fear of the Lord is pure, enduring forever. The decrees of the Lord are firm and all of them are righteous. They are more precious than gold, than much pure gold. They are sweeter than honey, than honey from the honeycomb. By them your servant is warned. In keeping them there is great reward. But who can discern their own errors? Forgive my hidden faults. Keep your servant also from willful sins. May they not rule over me. Then I will be blameless, innocent of great transgression. And verse 14. May these words of my mouth and this meditation of my heart be pleasing in your sight, Lord, my rock and my redeemer. I might just read that verse again. Hey? I love that, eh? Verse 14. May these words of my mouth and this meditation of my heart be pleasing in your sight, Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Praise him. Well, did you like the, um, the psalm that Jackie read? It was a good psalm, wasn't it? And I think we even had some songs with one with the sun in it. And Benjamin, did you select the music this week? Oh, was a, there was a creation psalm, psalm song too. Good. Yeah, I enjoyed it. And, uh, and it's a privilege to be uh, speaking here this morning and preaching on Psalm 19. And so I hope um, you find that a privilege too, actually, as, um, as you listen to me. Let us come before the Lord in a time of prayer. Let us pray. Uh, Lord, thank you for this time we share together now. Uh, thank you. We can think about your word. And Lord, we pray that you'd help us to take it seriously uh, take you seriously and respond in the right way. And we pray for your help in that process. Uh, we pray for these things in Jesus' name. Amen. If you've got your outline there, you'll find that helpful just as we make our way through this psalm. Uh, the introduction is wondering about creation. I went bushwalking a couple of weeks ago. Uh, with Benjamin and Roger. Is Roger here today? There he is. Good. Glad to see you, Roger. Uh, and we took some of our kids. 
And uh, one of the highlights of this um, bushwalking trip that we did just west of Port Macquarie was seeing God's good creation. Uh, we saw the Wedgetail eagles and, and appreciated them. It was, a, it was a good moment to enjoy, uh, a bit different to the days of my dad when he told me that they shot everything that moved when he went out in the woods. Um, but we saw wild boars uh, and spectacular yellow-footed rock wallabies as they were shimming up the cliffs as we sort of got close to them. They, they freaked out. Um, but as we got to the campsites and we could stay in the cabins, um, we, um, we spent some time looking up into the sky together as a group. It was a, it was a special time, uh, looking up into the stars and seeing also the shooting stars and then trying to figure out if one was a, a satellite going past or a shooting star. And as we were there together, we, we really enjoyed um, what might be described as witnessing the glory of God together. Uh, isn't that a nice little moment? Yeah. And I, I share that story because I'm sure that you've got your own stories like that as well, where you've looked out into skies which are clear and you've looked at the planets and the stars and you've thought about the glory of God. And so as, um, as we read this psalm today, that sort of sets the scene a little bit for what I think the psalmist has probably done as well. He's, he's looked into the universe, he's looked into the skies and he's reflected and thought back to the glory of God. Let's have a look now at creation that points to our glorious God. For in Psalm 19, we see that creation speaks words of sorts. It speaks words of sorts about God's glory. We'll pick it up there if you're reading with me from chapter 1. Sorry, yeah, yeah it's only one chapter. So, uh, yeah, verse 1. The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. Day after day, they pour forth speech. Night after night, they display knowledge. There is no speech or language where their voice is not heard. Yet their voice goes out into all the earth, their words to the ends of the world. Well, those are some magnificent words, aren't they, that describe the universe and capture something that we, we know full well as we look at that um, remarkable world that God has made and we, we enjoy it as well. The heavens and the skies speak. They speak about what God has made and consequently they speak about the glory and the majesty and the power of God as our creator. They speak about what God has made all the time. Did you notice that? It's day after day, night after night, they continue to speak. And how far do they speak out? Well, it's, it's a long way, isn't it? It's to the, the whole earth, to the ends of the earth. And verse 3 is very interesting, isn't it? It says, it depends on the translation. The one on the, the screen is possibly a little different to the NIV 1984 in, in your Bibles before you, but I've taken your one uh, in my reference. It says, there is no speech or language where their voice is not heard. And this could be interpreted a couple of different ways. It could mean that there's, uh, there's no place on earth where people speak that the voice of the heavens hasn't gone out. Or it could be that there is no speech, there's no language, there's no words, there's no voice that can be heard out loud from the creation. And yet the voice of the heavens and the skies goes out into the world and the visible 
becomes vocal. Seeing the magnificence of the heavens is experienced as hearing about the glory of God. No words as such that are audible, but people hear, don't they, in a mysterious and in a marvellous way about the glory of God from what they see. It seems to be interesting. There's nothing we can hear and yet they speak. Well, what is our response to that declaration from the heavens, that proclamation from the skies? When you and I look at God's good creation, uh, do we appreciate something of the majesty and power of God? The Apostle Paul grapples with uh, what creation speaks of in Romans chapter, chapter 1, verse 19 and 20, and says, Since what may be known about God is, is plain to people, because God has made it plain to them, for since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made so that men are without excuse. Paul points out that people know enough about God, they know enough about his glory uh, to be without excuse in knowing something of God. Uh, a famous Reformed theologian John Calvin said that people have an inbuilt sense of the divine. And the Bible speaks about two key responses to this knowledge of God from creation. And one response is to retain it and to keep that knowledge of God and for people to worship him. But the other response is for people to reject that knowledge of God, reject the God whom creation speaks about and to worship other things instead, even worship the creation. But that second response the Bible describes as not a, a wise response according to God's word. For in Psalm chapter 14, uh, ultimately it's the fool that says in his heart that there is no God. And so as we read Psalm 19 together, uh, we're left, left with the challenge. Are we really listening to the declaration of the heavens? Are we really listening to the proclamation of the skies as they speak about the glory of the living and true God from what he has made? And perhaps we're, we're almost invited, aren't we, as, as we're part of creation. There's almost an implied invitation to us as to whether we're going to be declaring the glory of God as well, whether we're, we're going to be people who praise and worship God too, just as uh, the rest of creation declares God's glory. Well, in the next section, we see that the Lord establishes order in his universe in verses 4b through to 6. In the heavens, he's pitched a tent for the sun, which is like a bridegroom coming forth from his pavilion, like a champion rejoicing to run his course. It rises at one end of the heavens and makes its circuit to the other. Nothing is hidden from its heat. And so at this point, the psalmist shifts his attention uh, to some of the specifics of creation. In the past, the sun has actually been the object of worship in the ancient Near East. Uh, certainly in Egypt, uh, it was named Amun or Ray in some situations. Uh, and people worshipped the, the sun rather than the creator. 
But here in the Bible, we're presented with the fact that the sun is an aspect or an element of God's good creation. Uh, it's something that he has established, and the sun carries out God's will. Here, the idea is that the sun's, sun's hidden. It talks about God putting it in a tent. At the right time, it comes out, and the imagery there is the, uh, the bridegroom coming from the chamber. Now, how are you, what are we to make of that? Is that because he's just woken up and he's about to go and get married? You know, he's, he's excited to come out of his room and he's, he's ready for the wedding? Or is it because he, um, he's just got married, actually, and he's very refreshed? He's, he's on his way out into the world to get on with his business. Uh, either way, the imagery is, this is there's a, a zeal there as the sun rises and, and moves like a champion across the sky. Uh, it passes over, it's impressive, and its heat is encountered by all. And uh, the truth of this imagery is that the sun is not a god. It's not something to be worshipped in and of itself. Uh, and neither is God in the sun, as some pantheistic and uh, other New Age philosophies would have us believe, that God is just Mother Nature and God's in the trees... God's in the wind, God's in the sun, God's in you and God's in me. Uh, no. Or if you're German, nein. That's not what the uh, Bible is teaching. God is not in those things and we are not God together. God's described uh, as separate or transcendent from his creation. And yet creation is nonetheless remarkable and it also achieves God's good's purposes. And the sun too speaks, doesn't it, of the glory of God, since it's also the work of God's hand. It's marvellous. What we're learning from this section of the Bible is that God is sovereign over all. As Christians, we believe that God's not only the, the creator of the universe, he also sustains it with the sun. And as we wake up each day, we do so in the knowledge that God's made a good and orderly universe and we can rely on it and expect it to operate in an orderly way as we go about our day-to-day -day activity. And we understand that orderly universe reflects the majesty and the glory of God. And that's the right way to think about the universe. That's a, that's a Christian worldview, to recognise the living and true God as the creator, that it reflects his glory, and we're part of that to worship him. Well, in Psalm 19 now, we've had words from creation about the glorious God and now we, we uh, see a changing tack where the psalmist uh, focuses on words from God. So let's pick that up. God's word guides his people. That's point three in the outline from verse seven. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The statutes of the Lord are trustworthy, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, giving joy to the heart. The commands of the Lord are radiant, giving light to the eyes. The fear of the Lord is pure, enduring forever. The ordinances of the Lord are sure, altogether righteous. They're more precious than gold, than much pure gold. They are sweeter than honey, than honey from the comb. By them your servant is warned. In keeping them, there is great reward. When God established his covenant relationship with Moses and the people at Mount Sinai for them to 
be his people and for him to be their God. He gave them the law, which in some ways you could almost compare that to like the vows at a, at a wedding. When people offer their vows, if they're fairly thoughtful vows, they're starting to set the terms for what they can expect in that relationship. And uh, God's law sets out the terms for his relationship with his people to guide them in life. He's the one who sets the terms. Out of all the nations of the world, they were to live as his his treasured possession, uh, his most trusted ally, and they were to live according to his good law. But what kind of attitude did the psalmist actually have to that God-given law? Was it a negative attitude that he had to the law? Oh, here's a bunch of rules. What a party pooper God is. Is that the kind of attitude that the psalmist has? Uh, Nine. Uh, In a word, no, it was not like that at all. Uh, In verses 7 to 11, we see several words that describe God's law. Look at them. Perfect, trustworthy, right, radiant, pure, sure, righteous, precious, and sweet. All these words are a very positive, a positive spin or view of God's law. And uh, that, that high view of God's law reflects the psalmist's understanding that God's law is good for his people. It represented the right way to live under the old covenant. And the psalmist sees some advantages in having the law. It revives the soul, makes wise the simple, gives joy to the heart, light to the eyes. In keeping God's law, there's great reward. In other words, the consequences for valuing God's law and living it out were going to be very fruitful ones. They would help someone to maintain a Godward orientation in life, ensure that their soul was revived or restored since the law offered a way of obedience to God that also resulted in remaining within his blessing. God's law was a gift to his people and it gave them principles to live by so that they wouldn't be empty of insight but instead wise. This was the problem. As people turned and worshipped and served created things, that's not wise. Uh, That's not cool to worship and serve created things rather than the creator. But the law sets the right orientation in life. That's a gift from God to help people understand the right way to live in his universe, his world. And this uh, message in the psalm is consistent with the message in Deuteronomy about uh, the law that Moses brings to the attention of the people in chapter 4, verse 5 to 8. See, I've taught you decrees and laws as the Lord my God commanded me, so that you may follow them in the land you are entering to take possession of. Observe them carefully, for this will show you, show your wisdom and understanding to the nations who will hear about all these decrees and say, surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. What other nation is so great to have their gods near them the way the Lord our God is near us whenever we pray to him? And what other nation is so great as to have such righteous decrees and laws as this body of laws I'm setting before you today? When the king and the people actually valued God's law and their relationship with God and sought to live according to God's law, life in the land was good. 
and they enjoyed the covenant blessings of God. In fact, the Queen of Sheba saw something of this when she visited and she remarked, Praise be to the Lord your God, who's delighted in you and placed you on the throne. She's saying this to King Solomon. Because of the Lord's eternal love for Israel, he's made you king to maintain justice and righteousness. The Queen of Sheba saw this high point in Israel's life when they're actually walking with the Lord. Solomon, in his early days, is walking with the Lord as king. And uh, as he does so, he's maintaining justice, he's maintaining righteousness. And so this is uh, actually a good example, if you like, of the, the high water mark of the Old Testament, if you can think of another higher point than that, come and tell me later. Uh, but this is where living according to God's laws is actually good. And sadly, that is the high point, though. And uh, they fall from grace, both the king and the people. And so the hope of the old covenant looked forward and their hope lay with a future saviour and king to come, someone better than Solomon, one who would reign consistently in true righteousness. They looked for someone who would carry out and live out God's law perfectly. And the good news is in these last days, in the time of the new covenant, we come to see that hoped-for king and saviour come. And the New Testament names him as Jesus. In the new covenant, God has spoken and he's called us to a new life. In Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, we read, In the past, God spoke to our forefathers through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed heir of all things and through whom he made the universe. Jesus came and he was different to the kings who came before him. He was the faithful king and son of God. He fulfilled the hopes of Israel in a way that no other king ever did or could. In Matthew chapter 5, Jesus reminds us that he didn't come to abolish the law or the prophets, but to fulfill them. And Jesus fulfilled the law. The law that the psalmist uh, writes about in Psalm 19, that he gets excited about and praises, it's a good law, but he couldn't carry it out. But Jesus did. Jesus fulfilled it. And he fulfilled the law on our behalf. He laid down his life for us as a perfect sacrifice and suffering servant. He bore our guilt and he bears our sin. And he establishes the way for people like us who don't carry out God's law as well. He establishes the way of forgiveness and our salvation. Isn't that wonderful? That's something to rejoice in, isn't it? Jesus was the faithful son of God in a way that nobody else has ever been, and he calls us to be his people and to follow him. In the Lord's Prayer, Jesus calls us to pray with him, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And Jesus challenges us as members of the new covenant to live genuine lives serving the Lord. That's our challenge. In Matthew chapter 5, verse 20, he says, For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you certainly will not enter the kingdom of heaven. And so we know we can learn from those people. They were playing games with the law. They actually wanted to dodge the spirit of the law 
and instead they were more interested in trying to make themselves look good before other people. And we can learn from those people because they didn't have the right attitude to God's law. But Jesus calls us to live radically different to that, doesn't he? Not to be people who are seeking to please people. Not to be seen by people and have a, a pat on our back and get our reward in this lifetime. But to be instead people who seek to love the Lord from the heart and seek to praise God. In fact, a little bit of a joke here. When I was uh, coming up to preach today, I, I got news that there was going to be some impressive people in the congregation today. And I started to quake. No, not really. Uh, I got a bit, you know, well, you know, there's some impressive people that I'm going to be preaching for. But I was reminded that I'm only here to please one person, and that's the Lord God. And that's the right orientation in life, isn't it? Well, it's not just good enough for me to have a go at doing that. You can have a go at pleasing the Lord as well. And so as the people of God today, our call is to please the Lord, to follow Jesus, to take our cross and follow him. We're challenged as the new covenant people to live by the Spirit, to take off that old self and to put on the new self that's being renewed in knowledge in the image of its creator. And in essence, our call is to grow to be a bit more like Jesus. That's the challenge today, friends. If you're talking about what was the sermon about at lunchtime, so well, he said a lot of things, but he talked about being a bit more like Jesus. There we go. Take that one out. In the Old Covenant, we can see that the psalmist needed God's help to respond the right way to God's law. And in the final section of this psalm, we see words again, but this time they're from the psalmist. We're at point four in the sermon outline. If you're following along, how will we live in response to our glorious God? Let's pick this up in verse 12. Who can discern his errors? Forgive my hidden faults. Keep your servant also from willful sins. May they not rule over me. Then I'll be blameless, innocent of great transgression. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Well, there's some very honest words, aren't there? Who can discern his errors? Other translations include, who can understand wanderings? This is saying, you know, it's, it's puzzling, isn't it, to think about our hearts that want to go astray. Uh, I found one remark from a commentator I was reading helpful, so I thought I'd include it in this sermon. This is from John Goldingay. Uh, verse 12 begins, from a more general sense of puzzlement at the human inclination to go off the rails. There's some language in it. In verse 12, who can discern his errors? Why are we rolling off the rails? I thought about trains being derailed at this point. Never-ending train wrecks. Doesn't sound great, does it? The mystery of human sin is the fact that we all go astray, even though we can see that God's expectations make sense. We understand God's way, and yet we all go astray. It's a puzzle, isn't it? Do we always... This is the challenging point in the sermon now. This is where you're supposed to feel a bit uncomfortable. Do we always live consistently with our values to love and serve the Lord? Are we always consistent in that? Are we so self-aware that we always see our own sin and our faults of character? Am I always familiar or acquainted with my own pride? 
Am I familiar with my self-absorption? And am I acquainted with my own self-righteousness? No. Nine. I'm not always familiar with my deep-seated sin, actually. I'm not always familiar with my deep-seated sin, but there's often friends and family around me who are a bit (laughs) acquainted with it. (laughs) And some of them like me to become aware of my sin as well. And you might be some of them. So go easy on me at morning tea. Like that box with delicate things inside that has the sticker on it marked, Handle with Care. Go and do likewise with me. But don't forget that you'll also have your own faults. You'll also have your own sin that this psalm's encouraging you to be aware of. And you might consider facing up to some of your sins this morning as well, some of your weaknesses and some of your faults. And so if you give me too much stick at morning tea time, I might have to, as they say in Scotland, I'll give him a taste of his own porridge. I'll give you a taste of your own porridge too if you give me too much stick for my sin. But no, this is the challenge this morning, isn't it? This, this psalmist is grappling with his own sin and asking God's help to see the weaknesses, the sin in his life, and uh, not to laugh about it, but to actually identify it and turn from it. And that's the challenge for us today too. Ultimately, the challenge here is, with these words from God, to ask for God's help in our growing awareness of our, our lives, areas that we can more positively think about growing in godliness in. This is the challenge, to think about what areas could we actually lift in. And we see that kind of prayer for help in verse 13. Keep your servant also from willful sins. May they not rule over me. And so here the psalmist really starts to blend with us in many ways, doesn't he? We live some time later, but we still have that common problem of our hearts, don't we? He's grappling with his heart and we can grapple with ours. And so in this age before God's kingdom comes in all its fullness, we'll continue to live with this struggle, won't we? But the struggle is to live more consistent and godly lives for the glory of God. And Jesus calls us to pray with him, Uh, Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from from evil. Although we've entered God's kingdom, the final wrap-up has not yet come. And so the challenge for us is to live now in this age, working at being more, more consistent in being godly. That remains the challenge. Well, in Psalm 19, we're faced with words from creation. Declaring the glory of God from what has been made. And we're invited in many ways to join in with the whole of creation as it proclaims God's glory too. Uh, We can proclaim God's glory. We can declare the glories of God as we sing to him and praise him in song, as as we offer our bodies as living sacrifices as uh, in worship to the Lord. In Psalm 19, we read words from God about his way to live. And we rejoice in Jesus who completed God's law and fulfilled it. We rejoice in Jesus who became our perfect sacrifice, the one who brings life and forgiveness because we're people who don't always love God and serve him and carry out his law. 
And so the challenge for us is to remain united to Jesus through faith as we seek to follow him and as we seek to grow more like him. There's a challenge. And finally, in Psalm 19, we see, we read words from the psalmist asking God to help him to live God's way. And like him, we can ask God for help too, to be more aware of areas in our lives where we can grow in godliness in. As we seek to do God's will and do that for God's glory. So let us come now in a word of prayer. Let us pray. Lord God, we give you thanks for the wonderful and majestic creation that you've made. Uh, We give you thanks that we can see the work of your hands and it reflects uh, your power and your glory. And Lord God, as uh, the rest of creation declares your glory, we, we want to praise you and give you thanks as well. Lord, we give you thanks for Jesus. We thank you that he's the one who perfectly lived out your law. Uh, We thank you that we're united to him through faith. And we give you thanks that uh, we receive your forgiveness because Jesus was our perfect sacrifice who laid down his life for our sin and and brought us uh, forgiveness and life with you. Lord, we give you thanks for his work and we thank you that we stand in your grace and have the privilege to be your people the members of the new covenant to to love and serve you and live your way today and lord as we think about that responsibility to be your people we pray that you'd help us not to ignore the areas of our lives which are immature but um, identify the areas that we need to change in and lift in help us to become a bit more familiar with areas that we could grow in godliness in and we pray for your help to do that and we pray that you'd Help us not only as individuals but also as a congregation to be a congregation that is um, growing together as your people. And Lord, we give you thanks for times like today when we can read your word together and take it seriously and we pray that you'd help us uh, to have a good 2023 as we seek to uh, live for your glory. And we pray for your help in these things. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.